Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here today with Dr. Sharvit, and we are talking about dynamic repetition, uh, studies on the models of time and history that shape Jewish messianism. And uh, Dr. Sharvit, such a pleasure to have you on today. Talk to us a little bit uh, about your career and what made you write this book. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, uh, this book basically started in the classroom. I was uh, mm. teaching uh, at the time at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and I was teaching about uh, Freud's theory of history as it is expressed in uh, Moses and Monotheism. This is his last book, and about the uh, origins of, Jeru- of Judaism. And um, we notice in class that there is a pattern of repetition that he identifies in history, an interesting pattern of repetition between different groups of religious organizations. So you have one group and then another and then another, and they all have uh, um, a repetitive structure. Mm. And slowly and surely, what happened is that I actually realized that r- patterns of repetition are, are recurring in that period of time in German Jewish history. So we're talking about interwar period. And uh, uh, somehow, you can find them quite easily. So, uh, and I figure how they are important to the Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig and to the uh, uh, Jewish critique and, and author uh, Walter Benjamin and to Freud and even to the author Franz Kafka. And uh, uh, this became a, a journey to realize what are the, uh, how repetition play out in that history and what are the purposes of that repetition. Uh, and so, uh, just to be upfront and so you know where I'm coming from, I'm a devout Christian, but even as I was looking through what, I mean, obviously there's going to be some similarities, uh, as fraught as that relationship might be sometimes. Um, I noticed that you also reference, uh, Kierkegaard kind of at the beginning to define that repetition. So, uh, for our audience, can you talk a little bit about, um, Kierkegaard's definition of repetition and how you use that to kind of start as you're, you're framing things. Yeah, so that's, that's absolutely correct. So in order to understand how repetition plays out in Kierkegaard, we need to understand how it plays out in ancient history. So in ancient history, mm. the idea of repetition is the idea that, uh, of eternal returns, that things repeat exactly as they are. And the reason that they repeat exactly as they are is that in, 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 in history, uh, the meaning of things are not in this world. So if you would like to understand what it is the meaning of, the, uh, uh, of marriage, you will see that in the marriage of the gods in, uh, outside of this world. Or how, uh, how to create a, a, a good house. The good house needs to be on, uh, according to a model of, um, of the house of the gods. So the meaning of this world is in, a, in, in the ancient world. We're speaking uh, uh, um, uh, in very large sense is something that is based on something outside of the world, of a repetition of that which is outside of the world. And so repetition is foundational to, the, to, the, to meaning in the ancient world. So if you would like to have 
a meaningful uh, 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 harvest, you need in some way to copy or repeat patterns that you find outside of the world, that or some kind of the, and it's called the mystical world or the mystic world or the beginning of the world, but something that is not in, the current, in, in our current reality. And this is what's known to be classical repetition, meaning the world repeats a pattern outside of the world. And in this pattern of repetition, the uh, repetition is useful or, uh, or, or, um, or correct if it is identical to what's outside of the world. So there is a question of identity. So to the degree that we are able to repeat things completely, we are able to create meaning into our world. So again, if I would like to have a, a successful marriage, I will need to repeat and to recreate that which is outside of my world in order to do that. Now, Interestingly, uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, Kierkegaard is writing a book in 1843 that's called Repetition, that suggests a different vision of what repetition is. And he understands repetition exactly not as an identical repetition of something that occurred in the past, or I'm sorry, of some kind of pattern outside of the world, but he suggests a repetition as an incident of relations between past and present. And what's inter interesting in his understanding of repetition is that this repetition needs not be identical. So the events in time should not be identical to what happened in the past, but actually uh, uh, they should contain some difference. And this difference is important to, for Kierkegaard uh, uh, philosophy, uh, and we can maybe say something about that. But the important fact that we should uh, uh, realize is that for Kierkegaard, uh, the repetition is not an identical uh, uh, um, and a, or identity between two events in time, but actually some kind of relation that uh, that uh, holds some difference, some uh, difference between those events. So it's not the repetition as an as an act of identity, but actually a, a repetition as an act of difference. And we can say something about that if you would like. So I, even as I, you're talking about uh, it's outside the world, uh, that kind of goes back to talking about models of time and history, right? It's that it's outside of time, that classical repetition. Is that outside of time and history? If that, and that's why it's mystical, or it, it, that's why it relies on the mystical. Would that be correct? Yes, absolutely. So exactly. So what we're trying to achieve in classical repetition is that to achieve this kind of timelessness, in a sense that copying something that is outside time, outside history, something that is supposedly in the beginning of time or outside of time. And in that sense, we are, in a sense, we are uh, um, inserting timelessness into our reality. So we are kind of like uh, um, stabilizing our reality, creating it as something that is uh, 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 endless. And in that sense, also meaningless. I'm sorry, meaningful. And so... Uh... Is there, like, would you say that for the classical repetition, you're talking about something static, and then when you're talking about past and present, you're talking about something that is a process, which I, I think would make sense with what Kierkegaard's trying to do in his philosophy, but... Yes, exactly. So now we can maybe suggest, so if repetition in the classic sense is something that is static, something that kind of like uh, uh, makes our moment as an endless moment that has no changes, uh, Kierkegaard think of that as something much more dynamic, and and to understand what in what way uh, how he thinks about that, maybe I should say one word about how we understand uh, um, uh, uh, the experience of the individual, the subject in his philosophy. 
Because uh, for Kierkegaard, it's very important that we are able to create our own reality, that there is, is one of the forefathers of existentialism. And, uh, uh, and for him, the, our ability to have, uh, to, to self-direct, uh, to self-directness, the, our ability to create our life is very crucial to how we understand uh, uh, the good life. Now, what's interesting for Kierkegaard is that he finds repetition to be crucial to this process of self-directness, in a sense that if we are usually seeing ourselves as somehow created by past events, so we are in our current moment the result of many events in time that happened that create ourselves, that created us, in a sense that we are the result of something that is external to us. Kierkegaard said that in order to see ourselves as in some way uh, 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 independent and autonomous, we need to see ourselves as repeating events in the, in the past to the degree that if I'm uh, uh, considering how my present is not the result of many events in the past, but actually relates to, uh, to events in the past. So for example, my present is related to, uh, to a repetition of some, uh, some a moment in my past, I'm able to take myself outside of the series of uh, causal events in time and recreate my me the meaning of my moment or, or my present by thinking of how I'm related actually to a different past, to a different moment in time. So I'm not the result of series of consecutive events in time, but actually uh, uh, I'm recreating myself in relation to a certain event in a certain, in my past. So, and by that, ability to tie myself to different events in the past and not as seeing myself as resulting from series of events in my history, I'm able to recreate uh, uh, myself as an independent and autonomous. Absolutely. And forgive me if this is, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think through this. Uh, would it be, uh, would another way of thinking about this uh, in day-to-day -day terms would be uh, you have a ritual, maybe a way of setting the table, and that's always the same. Versus with Kierkegaard, it seems to be some form of training. As in, every time you do the same action, you get slightly better, or it's because it slightly changes. Um, yeah, that's that's a great example, but uh, but I think it's 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 mostly about how we are perceiving ourselves. Uh, uh, um, differently from how we, we, we used to think our, of ourselves. So to give you a sentence, so I'm teaching every day, right? And it seems yeah. like my life are set for me and my, my reality is set in a way that I'm, I wake up in the, I wake up in the morning and I have a, a ritual and these rituals bring me to the end of the day in which I'm basically almost feeling like life is, is passing on me. So Kierkegaard says, how can you avoid that? And one way would be maybe to think of this moment in time not as a repetition of yesterday or the day before in which I, always, I was always also teaching, but maybe as, as think of maybe a year ago in which I had an experience of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of a different kind of a teaching moment or a moment mm -hmm. in which I taught in a different university, something that brings about new meaning to my every day. So, and by able to go back to this moment in time and think differently about my present, I'm able to, uh, uh, to reconsider my life and look and reconsider my options uh, uh, and reconsider how to live uh, 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 and, and, and experience the, the, the present moment. Because we are kind of like almost always uh, clothed by our own day-to-day -day reality. And Kierkegaard is 
suggest let's think of ourselves not as this as, as we are forced to live in this ongoing reality but actually as how we are able to move uh, um, backwards and think about the past events like a year ago two months ago and how we are also different from those events we're not the same and this difference mm. between these events uh, produces something that is very crucial to uh, Kierkegaard yeah I I think I'm tracking with you. I think, you know, before we get into Freud and Kafka and uh, uh, Benjamin, um, you talk about the two poles for Jewish uh, messianism. Um, and you start with uh, this really great story, which I had heard before. Um, but if you don't mind telling it again and giving kind of how it, it demonstrates these two different types of repetition, uh, the Messiah at the gate of Rome. Um, how does that kind of set up this whole discussion in terms of the Jewish conception of Messiah? Yeah, so um, so this story is is basically uh, uh, the, it's called the Messiah at the Gate of Rome, in which uh, a Jewish sage uh, goes to Elijah and asks him about the coming of the Messiah, because Elijah supposedly knows about the coming of the Messiah, and Elijah ask the sage to go and, uh, and meet the Messiah at the gates of Rome and, and ask him himself. Now the sage says, how would I recognize the Messiah? And uh, Elijah answers, you will see him uh, uh, wrapping uh, bandages on himself uh, and, and on and on uh, as if he's bandaging a wound. And he's at the gates of Rome like all the other uh, um, poor uh, uh, people of Rome. And so the Messiah goes to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 this sage goes to, uh, to Rome and meets the Messiah and asks him about whether he would come uh, uh, and when. And the Messiah says, I will come today. Um, and so the, uh, the sage goes back and very happily, uh, 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 but, but the Messiah does not come. And he then he goes to Elijah and asks him, could it be that uh, uh, there was a mistake? Could it be that there was something wrong? And uh, could it be the Messiah was lying? And so the, Elijah says, no, he, he meant actually that you will, he will come today if you will do as he says, or something in those lines. And now what's interesting is that many consider that to be a, a moment in which we think about messianism as something that is uh, uh, unknown or something that is not related to human actions, because even the Messiah does not know when he will come. But what's fascinating to me is a movement that we are seeing in this, uh, in this story, a movement of repetition of the Messiah tying the bandages and them tying them again and again and every day. And there is something repetitive in this reality of being in the messianic moment that this uh, uh, story depicts. And I think was not recognized before, but is actually very important for our understanding of how messianism functioned uh, in modernity. And so that kind of uh, takes us into that interwar period that you were talking about in the 1930s. So how do you see um, this idea of repetition playing out in thinkers like Kafka, Freud, Benjamin? Um, you know, uh, maybe just as a starting off question, I, I, maybe I missed the point of it. But when I see letter to the father instead of letter to a father from Kafka, that mm -hmm. to me is a signal. What, what do you think, uh, is there meaning to the, the choice of the father instead of a father there? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, Kafka's relations with his father are very uh, uh, complicated. And it is part of what many consider to be a problem or, or, or a challenge of, of that generation. And it is a challenge in which uh, of alienation from uh, tradition. So what you find in the, in the early 20th century uh, period is a, a new generation of, of, um, of educated Jews who are in many ways asked to leave Jewish tradition and asked to, be, to join uh, the general secular uh, society by their fathers. But the problem is that this generation is actually, uh, does not find themselves in that outside reality. And they are, and, and by being pushed out, they also cannot find the, their home back in the Jewish tradition. So this living in between, in between the Jewish tradition that they were pushed by their father and not being accepted or completely accepted to the general society, uh, on the other hand, created a really ch a serious challenge to that generation. And the, in this letter that you, 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 you were just mentioning, Kafka is basically asking or question or, or, or even uh, um, charging his, uh, his father with serious questions about that movement of, of, uh, or, the, or that request to leave the Jewish tradition and what it entailed. And basically what Kafka is saying to the father is, that it is easier to the father to live in a world, a secular world, because he was connected to the Jewish tradition, and he had mm. some sources of meaning on to rely on, which the Kafka and his generation lacked. And in that sense, Kafka is living in an un, impossible reality in which he's torn from Jewish tradition and the outside world, and and this is in part because of how the older generation uh, uh, educated or grew their uh, or uh, grew their um, um, their offspring or their children. How do these, uh, how does this like liminal space, this uh, alienated space for identity play into models of time and history? Yeah, so um, I think the, 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 the short answer is that what you find in the interwar period is, is a moment of great, uh, uh, um, great danger in a sense. What you find is growing fascism, growing anti-Semitism, and you find uh, uh, um, the dangers of, of uh, economic uh, depression, and and many left-wing uh, 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 figures in the Jewish community somehow figure ways to 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 for radical uh, changes in that reality through messianism. So, and that's the moment of, of real fascination because exactly those who left the Jewish tradition behind, Benjamin was not, not religious at all. Kafka was not religious at all. Freud, certainly not. Somehow they were fascinated with model of messianism or thinking of messianism or Jewish messianism as a way to move beyond the challenge or to solve the challenge of their political present. So, uh, and, and this is in a way, uh, uh, um, a radical thought in, in, in its purest form. So rather than solve political uh, challenges with political means, there is an attempt to find some more radical solution, solution that will transcend the current political reality by way of messianism. So, uh, so exactly those who were left outside of Jewish tradition return to that tradition exactly in order to find solution to what they found to be unsolved problems of their present time. Do you get uh, a different set of models among those thinkers for messianism? Yes. Yeah, so um, there are 
I think what I, I find is, is a series of, of different models of repetition that are not identical in a sense that they are working on different parameters. For example, uh, Benjamin and uh, 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 Freud and, and, and Rosenzweig uh, think of Messianism in terms of, of the entire Jewish people. Benjamin think about that in different terms. Certainly Kafka is also different. They're also very different in terms of the, of the, of the structures of how repetition works. But what's fascinating is that they all find repetition to be foundational to their ideas of messianism. So, and if you will allow me, I will just give you a sense of how that works. Please. Yeah, in, in, in one sentence. So uh, I think it's an, a nice way to think of that is to think about Franz Rosenzweig. So Franz Rosenzweig writes in 1921 a book about, it's called The, the uh, Star of Redemption, in which he's trying to figure out the place of Judaism in modernity, exactly because he's not, he was in, in quite some time, not part of the Jewish world. He thought, what, do we, what is the purpose of Judaism? What is the value of Judaism in our present time? And uh, in order to understand how his answer relates to repetition and to ideas of uh, uh, messianism, a short moment about how he feels about uh, community. So communities could be uh, uh, understood in different ways. Communities are organized sometimes by... Uh, 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 values or principles or uh, even religious ideals. But Rosenzweig, uh, Rosenzweig believes that communities are actually organized by way of uh, a temporal uh, uh, and uh, figures of calendar. And he basically says that what makes a community a community is its ongoing calendar, the repetitions of festivals and the repetition of different days and the repetition of the structure of the week. That, that this is what creates uh, uh, the experience of a community. So the fact that Jewish people are all not, uh, are not working on, uh, on Saturday, uh, while all the rest of the world do work on Saturday, is a moment of the creation of, uh, of, of a community. And you can see that happens in the ancient world when you, for example, when you have uh, uh, the Christian world, the, the moment the Christian world breaks out of Judaism is the moment of the creation of the Christian calendar, the moment of the change of, the, of Saturday to Sunday at the end of the week. And, and this is important to Rosenzweig because he suggests that this experience of repetition of times, the repetition of the days and the weeks, the repetition of the uh, festivals is something that creates a community. Now, why is this is messianic? For, for Rosetzweig, uh, uh, there is a notion that to bring world redemption, we need to work in, in dual form. And there is a place both for Christianity and Judaism in that structure. He believes that the purpose of Christianity is to, uh, 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 to bring everyone under God. It's a kind of an imperialist religion with its uh, function of bringing all, all humanity under God to redemption. It's to collect everyone under God. And the purpose of Judaism in this structure is to create a model for the Christian world to move towards. The, the Judaism, in a sense, creates a, a kind of a community that anticipates redemption. It's a kind of like a structure that shows us where we need to go if we are living in a Christian world. And what's fascinating in this uh, 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 description is that the, the huge problem with the Jewish world is that it, we, it is easily swallowed by the Christian world. And uh, Rosenzweig believes that the Jewish world needed to find a way to create some kind of an essential difference between the Jewish and the Christian world. And this essential difference is the Jewish calendar. So 
to, to put it very simply, if you would like to have uh, uh, an, an independent reality, an independent Jewish reality that would show the, the entire world under Christianity where the world needs to go in order to achieve redemption, then, then Rosenzweig says you need to create a calendar that is unique to the Jewish people that will allow them to create some kind of a communal reality that is outside of the ongoing Christian uh, uh, unification of the world. So in very short terms, repetition, repetition of time is essential for world redemption exactly because it creates the unicity of the Jewish people. For the, and this unicity of the Jewish people provides the content for the world redemption as it is, uh, 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 as it is led by the Christian world. And this is one example out of three different four examples of how repetition is, is foundational to the possibility of redemption. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I remember reading um, a book on festivals. Um, and how important they are for the the creation of time, and uh, that idea of how found how foundational um, not just not just week to week, but even like in the, those fifty year jubilee kind of periods. That's that's really. I'm just I'm just sitting with that for a second. So what would be the models uh, of messianism for uh, someone like Kafka? Yeah, so, uh, um, so Kafka has, uh, uh, is also related to uh, uh, Kierkegaard. Maybe just before that, um, just to, to, yeah. to, uh, um, um, to clarify what we mean by, 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 by models of repetition and time. So um, yeah. think, for example, of the experience of... Uh, uh, um, of myself, someone who uh, I was uh, born and raised in Israel and, 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 and came to United States. And the moment for me of how different my world is and the community is, uh, uh, when I realized that uh, in, well, while back in Israel, my reality is one of, of, of a certain festival uh, um, celebrated in certain times of the year, and then coming to United States. And at the moment of those festivals, the world is just as the same. There is nothing that is happening outside, there is no experience of festival. And how this really showed a break between my experience of the community and the, the, the community outside. And how you could really find uh, in, the, in, in, in like the three prayers in the day that the Jewish are practicing, or five prayers that the, uh, the Muslim are practicing, a kind of a rhythm, rhythm that produces a, a community. And it's really a material way to think about community. And if you are thinking about that very seriously, uh, 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 this is a way to, to differentiate between two communities. If I'm working under a different calendar, if I'm e even if I'm eating at eight o'clock in the night and, some, and other people eat at five o'clock p.m., uh, it really makes a very different community, a very different reality in which we are living. And what's basically President uh, uh, Zweig suggests that this kind of, of a, of a re reality is foundational for redemption. Now, the story with Kafka uh, is very different. It's, it's one that is based on, 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 a, on a letter that he, so I'm sorry about that. No worries. So 
what you have in uh, uh, in Kafka is a, is a, is an interesting letter that he writes in 1921 about uh, uh, a series of Abraham that uh, uh, that supposedly did not answer to uh, did not answer to God call to sacrifice uh, Isaac. So the binding of Isaac uh, uh, is a, is a theme of this letter, but it's actually uh, uh, something that not, does not happen because uh, uh, Kafka believes that there is. Uh, uh, describing this letter, uh, um, how we these Abrahams are actually not responding to God's call to to sacrifice Isaac. So he's describing someone who is too busy to uh, uh, to go to uh, Mount Moriah, or another one who doesn't believe that he's even been called for that. Uh, God even talks to him or and asks him to do such a thing. And what's fascinating in this story is that it's a, it's a, or in this letter that many consider to be a, a response to Kierkegaard's own uh, work on, on Abraham is that in his repetition, what you find uh, is a structure of, of refusal that basically mm. uh, disrupts uh, uh, the meaning of a cohesive, uh, um, uh, discernible Abraham in a way that uh, uh, because of the repetition of the story, uh, uh, the fact that there are different figures of Abraham with different stories of Abraham, you are uh, uh, Kafka is basically able to to show us how the, the mere figure of Abraham collapses under repetition, and because of that, there is a, this inability to resp- um, even stronger inability to respond to God's uh, uh, calling, and. Uh, uh, and the messianic dimension of that story, which I find uh, uh, fascinating, is also is is found in the idea that uh, what Kafka is basically telling us is how we can find in each and every moment more than one story. So, if you have uh, in the story of the binding of Isaac the, the official uh, uh, history, then Kafka basically tells us in the, with this letter, in my mind, how we can find or identify in the same. Uh, event different interpretations or different readings, and these different readings affords us a, a different uh, uh, reality. And when you think about that, the fact that Abraham is the one that inaugurates Jewish history, then you find in different readings of the story of Abraham a, a, at least a literary option to rethink uh, Jewish history or different options within Jewish history. Are you familiar with the book The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony? I honestly can't say I do. Um, so that definitely a shot in the dark, but it's a retelling. Um, it's been a it's been a hot minute, but uh, Roberto uh, Colasso wrote this book, and there's multiple versions of this myth of Cadmus and Harmony getting married, and uh, he basically tells the story in all the different variations of the myth, and to pull out the different meanings that are that are possible there. It just I obviously uh, saw some correlation there. Um, exactly. Yes. Does this go to, you mentioned Nietzsche at the uh, beginning of the book as well. Does this kind of the idea that the eternal return gives us all possible variations? Is that the model of time that we're dealing here with uh, Kafka? That idea of like all the interpretations are possible in that repetition? Yes, exactly. So uh, exactly. So, and, and that goes to, to a different reading of Nietzsche that is very uh, popular in, in 20th century French thought, that when Nietzsche talks about the eternal return, he's not talking about how 
we we re-experience the uh, the world returns exactly like it is, but actually the world it returns uh, in different forms. And in the context of Kafka, uh, uh, it's 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 a way to think about how literature can provide uh, uh, um, different options or different realities or different readings to the same event. And if you would like, that, this is a beginning of thinking uh, uh, radical politics because if you you always think about how politics is. Uh, you know, there is no option out. There is no way to solve uh, current uh, um, um, challenges. Then Kafka, with the repetition of the story, but exactly the repetition that is not the same, is able to provide us a way out of uh, of, of of the binding of Isaac, of the murder of Isaac, and in that sense, is also providing us way to think other political challenges. So what you find here. Is exactly a moment of, of of difference that that provides other readings, other opportunities, other options, all of which are useful to think about political reality. Uh, I mean, maybe as an example, um, would that apply from a radical politics standpoint of not getting stuck thinking capitalism versus Marxism or communism, but thinking of like an uh, even an alternate reading between that like just that reoccurring butting of heads or am i am i thinking about that correctly yeah yeah i think this is the right way to go so we uh, we find ourselves trapped in in a in a very limited series of options or limited series of ideologies that tend to be re- to be unhelpful in some cases and what kafka suggests is uh, a literary uh, um, um, mechanism to see other options, and uh, I find that to be extremely valuable. Exactly in a moment in which you you would like to have those options available for you uh, uh, in terms of political action, and I think that's kind of, that's the offshoot of and 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 we when we we need to recognize this is as as a kind of a different messianism from what we think of. So. Sometimes we think about messianism as some, someone who comes from the sky and saves the world in, you know, in, a, in a battle of good against bad. But messianism works differently in different versions of, of in different periods of time. Sometimes messianism is just meet one a single person meeting a god or uh, or god. Sometimes it's 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 violence. But sometimes it's about recreating a reality in a way that is not possible by current political uh, circumstances. This is messianism, to, to be able to think beyond what is achievable in, in what we have, uh, uh, in what, in, with the tools of the political tools and concepts that we have in our hands today. And in that sense, uh, this repetition creates a messianic option that is valuable in my mind. I literally just interviewed... Um... Last week, um, uh, Dr. Eschel um, out at Stanford and on his book, Poetic Thinking Today, and his whole thesis was about how we need to make space to be creative, to create a poetic space in order to open up political possibility. So that's, <laughs> this sounds very, very familiar right now in, in good ways, Um so I, if I'm if I'm tracking, I think like I think there's some confluence there. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about uh, 
Walter Benjamin's uh, model of messianism. Yeah. So uh, again, this will be a, a different story. So that, and I think that's what's yes. interesting about how they're all very different. So if Rosenzweig thinks about messianism and repetition as some kind of a, a social reality, and Kafka thinks about that as a literary maneuver, uh, uh, Benjamin brings us back to uh, uh, history. And, and he, but he doesn't think about mis, uh, uh, repetition as some kind of a structure that happens at a social level. But he finds that to be uh, more similar to, to, to Kafka about finding options that are not available in the present. And it goes similarly to what I suggested about uh, uh, Kierkegaard. And maybe it will, be, it will clarify how Kierkegaard thinks about re repetition. What's basically what... Uh, um, as Benjamin suggests in, in his book, uh, in the Arcade Project, and that is, it's, a it's a project that he's, he's doing in the 1930s in, in the concept on, and in this uh, thesis on the concept of history that he published in, uh, not published, writes in 1940. Uh, um, he, he has this vision of the world as pregnant with options, uh, or the time as pregnant with options, because that's a now time. And, and this now time is, every, is, is every, each and every moment of our lives. And uh, uh, what Benjamin suggests is that in order to see different options, how different options are embedded within our moment, we need to think about this moment in time in a constellation with a different moment in the past. And he, and he, he writes beautifully about how uh, the French Revolution was considered to be a repetition of the Roman era or the Roman Empire in order for the French Revolution to be able to radically change the present. And he suggests that we are able to, rec to create uh, some differences or to identify differences in the present by seeing the present as a repetition of a certain moment in time. So if you would like, um, one way to think about that is to think about uh, uh, COVID and to say, how can we, how, how can we change our reality uh, uh, with COVID, how can we radically uh, reinvent, reinvent ourselves uh, um, or our health system uh, uh, with COVID? And people, and, and I think it's an, an, an interesting way to, is to think about COVID and how it relates to the 1918 Spanish uh, um, uh, disease. And to think about that as a moment in which you identify how there is some kind of, uh, uh, of, of relation that is moving beyond time. So I'm not, def again, so it's kind of like what Kikuka suggested. There is no uh, uh, seeing the moment of the present as, uh, as created by a series of events that brought this uh, event in a mechanical form, mechanical transition of, of moments, but actually as seeing this moment as impregnant with uh, 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 reality that was uh, of two, 100 years ago in the Spanish, uh, uh, of 1918 in the Spanish uh, disease, and maybe in colliding those two moments together in, in, in what in Benjaminian terms, we can identify a different uh, way to think about our health system in, in the United States, for example. So, uh, and he finds that this non-recursive uh, non, non uh, 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 relation between a certain event in the present and a certain event in the past may create some kind of a constellation of dangers, which is, this is how he calls it, that would be, uh, uh, in his term, explode or that the, the, the homogeneous timing, or maybe to say differently, would change how we understand our present 
to the degree that we were able to see different options. So in the same way that the French identify the possibility of revolution by connecting their present to the Roman Empire, we can identify how to change our current reality United States by finding the relationship with the Spanish uh, 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 the disease in 1918. I'm not sure I'm, I'm tracking with that. Uh, with that. So is the goal to look and find something similar in the past in order to uh, examine it for what could have been done different back then to use it now? Or uh, I'm not sure that I'm, uh, I'm not sure that that's the right, well, well, that's what you're talking about. So I'm, I'm just trying to clarify. Yes, yeah, so of course. So what I'm saying is that, no, the, 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 the purpose of this colliding of two events in time, the present and certain mm -hmm. past, is to produce new options in the present by way of uh, an, an insight or some kind of an intuition or some kind of a, a revelation from that past. Now, uh, uh, so uh, again, and I think that the, the, the French Revolution is important here. If we think about the French Revolution as, some, as, as a moment of a break in history, something that completely new is introduced to history, this newness that is introduced to history is with because of a relation with a past event that really change how the the present moment is understood, organized, and how options are suddenly become available in it. And so in the same way, if you wanted to think about what could radically change the health system in the United States, maybe think about, for example, how uh, people were treated in the past in, in, in the... In the uh, uh, in the Spanish, the, flu. Uh, Spanish flu, or how uh, how people were considering, uh, or maybe about um, uh, uh, health uh, uh, regulation and safety, maybe about how the system works down there uh, uh, at this period of time. Something in that period may be valuable to think differently about how we deal with COVID in the present. And again, this is just one example, but the idea is to to find points of reference that change how we understand the, the, the present. Again, op opening up the present to other options that are not available uh, uh, if things are going in the way that they're going with this kind of like ongoing transition of events that are seem to be beyond our control. This uh, Would this be basically what you're doing with your book? Uh, in, in some ways, going back to 1930s, uh, modern Jewish uh, messianism, but even what they were doing, feeling alienated and finding solutions by going back to a tradition that they had lost. Is this why they went, like in some ways, is that why uh, Benjamin is going back and finding this, the, this tradition that he had lost? Yeah, I think this is, this is exactly, thank you for that. For that. Oh, okay. I, uh, I appreciate it, uh, this question, because uh, this is, if you would ask why writing this book, it's it's about figuring ways to f or models to think about a radical change, political radical change, that is built on some kind of, of of religious and messianic thought, in a way that these people also did in the past. And what's and 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 the reason I'm doing that today is because I find that messianism and religious thought are usually related to right wing uh, uh, agenda. And people think about apocalypse and, and, and messianism as some, <laughs> as some kind of a violent, aggressive, 
uh, uh, good against bad kind of like ideology that is really working with, with the right wing. And what I'm trying to do in this book in the end is to suggest that there is a moment in, in our recent history in which people, left-wing uh, uh, figures, thought of Messianism as a good idea to think about radical political change. And so in that sense, I'm going back to that period as a way to rethink the present and maybe to suggest other options for political action in the present in the same way that these people did, thinking about their present and how it relates to past events. So yes, this is a kind of like a, a, a chain of, of going back exactly to in order to, to, to do something different from what we, are, what we are having or what we are getting from the usual uh, uh, solutions. I think I'm on the same page with you, and I, I appreciate your patience as, uh, as I work through this. Um, so we've talked about, uh, you use the term colliding. Is there a significant difference between colliding these two together versus, say, renewing or reclaiming uh, a past event or tradition? Yes. Yeah, so um, here we need to to be attuned to what Benjamin kind of like uh, suggests. Um, um, in the end, for Benjamin, there is a reading of Benjamin as suggesting some. He's he's looking for. A, some kind of a, of a violent radical solution that mm. in, in, and is not, I would say in some reading is not extremely worried of that being not peaceful solution. So, and, and you could say reclaiming would be more attuned with a kind of a more peaceful, uh, uh, um, ah. attentive kind of a, uh, of a reading of the past. What I find Benjamin to be, and, and again, I'm not the only one who, who understand him this way, is that he has this kind of, a, of an understanding that sometimes solutions to radical, to, to critical problems like fascism and anti-Semitism needs to, to be understood in terms like the uh, uh, um, uh, strikes and maybe violent strikes of the, of the proletariat mm. or uh, uh, some kind of, of radical revolution that may be violent. Now, whether I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely on board with him, I'm not sure, but I would say that at least in Benjamin reading, there is this kind of an understanding of what needs to be done. Yeah, and I think I understand the difference then there. There's this idea of when we use the past, it's confronting us. Would that be, would that be fair? Even... Uh, even if the solution doesn't end up being violent in the here and now, the the collision is violent because of what the past demands from us or this tradition. Yes, this is really nice. This is beautifully put. Yes, I agree. Okay, that's yeah. That makes sorry. <laughs> that's kind of a long. But that, that like I feel like I'm on the same page now. Appreciate that. The um. So and I want to be uh, conscious of your time, but do you mind uh, talking about uh, Freud finally? and Freud's model of uh, messianism. Yeah, so, and here again, we find a very different version of overpetition, one that, uh, uh, that plays more closely, I would say, with Rosenzweig than Benjamin and Kafka. And the story of, 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 is, is a bit longer, so uh, uh, I'm sorry about that. So, no Moses, 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 and we're talking about Freud and Moses and monotheism, the books that he writes in uh, just when he's living, uh, escaping uh, Austria and lives to, to London. And in this book, uh, uh, Freud tries to explain Jewish history. 
And you find that in the beginning of that in Moses. Specifically, you understand Moses to be a prince, an Egyptian prince, not a Jewish prince, that, uh, uh, hmm. uh, that uh, uh, monotheism is introduced to Egypt just before, and he's, he's a, a, an ardent believer in monotheism. But the, the, the peril uh, uh, that uh, the king that, that introduced monotheism to Egypt is actually died, and then the, the Egyptian would like to return to, uh, to their previous uh, uh, religion. And so what Moses is doing is basically taking the Jewish people outside of uh, Egypt in order to keep monotheism alive. They are the one that should continue worshiping the, only, uh, the one and only God, and he should be their leader. So Moses is actually a, an Egyptian uh, uh, prince that introduces monotheism to the Jewish people. Fascinating. Uh, 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 this is not the only uh, drama that uh, Freud identifies. He also argues, and he's not the only one that argues that, that uh, it's, monotheism is so demanding than polytheism that the Jewish people basically kill him because they cannot sustain this, the, 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 the kind of demand that Moses asked for them. And this murder creates uh, 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 the Jewish people. Now, it's, it's kind of a long story why and how, but what's important to understand that this murder does not create only the Jewish people, it actually creates also the Christ, Christianity as a response to the murder as well. So what you have, you have the murder of Moses, and then the, as, a, as, a, as a response to this murder, yeah, as a, to the trauma of this murder, you have the creation of the Jewish people, and then the creation of Christianity. Now, what uh, uh, Freud is actually suggesting that if the Jewish people have a certain quality or character, which he defines as spirituality or Geistlichkeit in, in German, or maybe reason would be an, an, another way to produce that. So there, there are rational human uh, uh, the rational society because of how they respond to the murder. And it also says that Christianity is, uh, is, uh, uh, is a religion of sensuality exactly because of how it responds to the murder. Because it, what he says really nicely, he says that what you have with, uh, uh, with uh, Jesus is an attempt to relinquish the guilt over the mur murder of uh, Moses from the, from the entire or entirety of the world. And so Jesus kind of like sacrifices himself for the murder of Moses. And he's saying hmm. that by doing that, he's able to, to stop this over-rationalization, over-stagnation uh, 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 of the Jewish community and allow some kind of sensuality to be brought back to their religion. So what you have is a, is, is a, is a relation between sensuality and reason in history as it is prescribed by two different uh, religions. And what Freud suggests that this kind of like creation of two different versions of religious organizations are, is, is something that is, happens again and again in history. So in a, in, in a way, each and every murder creates a different kind of a, of, of a society, of a religion, according to those two patterns. So you have either reason or sensuality. And if you would like, we can imagine what, mean, what is the, the murder of JFK, how it creates its mm. own kind of a religious structure. Or maybe how hmm. the, the murder of Rabin as another kind of Moses in the, 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 the Israeli prime minister, Itzhak Rabin, is another form of the creation of a Jewish, of a, such a, a religious structure. And the, inter, the, the interaction between those uh, different kinds of religious organization is, in my mind, a way to think about, seriously, about what, how can we figure the duality of reason and sensuality in history. So... And with Freud, we can see in what way 
reason and sensuality are actually interchangeable in a sense that they are the responses to the same event. So in a way, they are like um, different or, or distinct form of responses to the same event. And in that, they are interchangeable because what Freud suggests is that what you have is a response to the murder by way of, uh, of reason and then a response to the murder by way of sensuality and then another by way of reason. And what you have is an ongoing uh, 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 interplay of reason and sensuality in history that shows how this very foundational uh, 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 dualism between reason and sensuality is actually much more interchangeable and something that's much more um, uh, uh, complicated than this kind of like clear distinction between them. So, and, and this is a messianic thought in the sense that it clears away. It's not messianic in the sense that it brings new insight. It actually clears us away or empties uh, uh, or, or helps us uh, um, uh, uh, think again about how we find this essential inherent dualism of the Western world between reason and sensuality that we have all, all the way from Paul uh, in different ways. So this is kind of like a way to think differently about concepts, not only about religious uh, and, and political uh, uh, principles. And, and that's, uh, for him, that's largely a therapeutic thing about achieving wholeness within ourselves. Exactly. So if you would like, uh, uh, what you've got is, is, is an attempt to heal not a, a, a person or an individual, but to heal us from this kind of division that is, in a sense, to understand what is psychoanalysis is exactly to understand the division between the conscience, the unconscious, reason and sensuality. And finally, in his last work, but Freud is basically suggest a way to be healed from that division, a way maybe to think about them uh, interacting more uh, differently or interacting in a more, uh, in a more dynamic way. So you have, uh, 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 in a way, uh, um, uh, a story about history that is basically one that helps us to rethink about what breaks us into two very different dimensions that Freud would like us to think about them as harmonized more peacefully than what we, we, we think of uh, uh, usually. Excellent. As we wrap up, what's a last thing that you would leave to our listeners? about dynamic repetition and this way of thinking of, uh, salvifically, uh, messianically uh, about, uh, about their time and their history. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so uh, this, this book is working on, on different registers. It, walks about, it, 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 it talks about dynamic repetition as some kind of philosophical structure that we find in modern philosophy. In Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, we said something about them. It also work um, on religion, but I think that, uh, uh, and about how messianism plays out in a certain period in Jewish history, which I find to be uh, really important, but it really is a book about how uh, 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 we can useful, usefully think about the place of religion within politics in a way that secular politics, secular left-wing politics seems to be impossible. So hmm. uh, it's a way to, uh, and I think that if, there is one thing I would like us to take from this book is how we can find ideals of messianism that seems to be extremely violent, extremely uh, um, uh, dangerous, 
ideals mm. that are usually at the hand of right wing politics as something that could be useful to think uh, also for the uh, uh, for left wing uh, propaganda. Absolutely, Dr. Charvit, just absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you. Thank you so much.